Welcome to Songcraft, Spotlight on Songwriters, a bi-weekly podcast featuring in-depth conversations with and about the creators of lyrics and music that stand the test of time. I'm Scott B. Bomar. And I'm Paul Duncan. Songcraft is part of the American Songwriter Podcast Network, which can be found at americansongwriter.com. To make sure you don't miss an episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our show via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also keep up with us on social media by searching for one word, Songcraft Show, or visit us at songcraftshow.com. Our guest on this episode of Songcraft is Justin Gray, a songwriter, record producer, and music executive whose projects have sold in excess of 40 million copies and earned more than 8 billion streams worldwide. He'll join us in a bit to talk about his day-to-day life as a songwriter-producer who has worked with Avril Lavigne, Mariah Carey, Glenn Campbell, John Legend, and many others. Well, Scott, we've talked about the St. Augustine Songwriters Festival before, and we've talked about how you got to get your registration in soon, right? We've said that. Well, now I'm telling you it's the last chance. This is the last podcast that we will be putting out before this festival happens. So if y'all want to go, you got to do it now. Yeah. Uh, remember we used to be fans of that show, The Biggest Loser? Yes. Remember the last chance workout? (laughs) The last chance. This is the the last chance. This is the last chance workout. If you are interested in going down to the St. Augustine Songwriters Festival in St. Augustine, Florida, it's coming up October 22nd, 23rd, and 24th. And like Paul said, you're not going to hear our voices again before uh, before that festival kicks off. So this is your call to action, folks. If you are (laughs) interested in that songwriter festival, you need to do something about it like right now. Uh, I'm motivated. I, I know you are, and that's saying something because you're usually I know, I'm a lazy guy, a bit of a sluggard. Uh, so go to St. Augustine Songwriters Festival.com. That's S T, not S A I N T. St. Augustine Songwriters Festival.com. On the website there, they've got information with all of the songwriters who are going to be performing, which is a pretty impressive list. So go and check that out. And uh, just a great opportunity to go down and hear some amazing songwriters doing the, the thing they do, talking about their songs, playing them, and, and exhibiting the, uh, the craft that we love to celebrate here on Songcraft. And tell them Songcraft sent you. They won't care, but tell them. <laughs> I think they'd like to know. Part one. So before we get into this interview with Justin Gray in just a minute, um, we should talk about how we wound up even speaking to Justin Gray in the first place. Yeah. Um, so a few weeks ago, I am in my house, which doubles as Songcraft World Headquarters, uh, as some of you know, and um, somebody rings my doorbell. And, you know, we're kind of coming out of the COVID thing. So I'm like, who's coming you put to my your house? helmet on. I put my helmet on. I got my spear. <laughs> uh, so I open the door and there's this dude and he's like, hey, are you a musician? And I was like, yeah. How'd you know? He's like, ah, I was walking by with my dogs. I saw your drum set. I'm like, ah, it's my wife's drum set. And uh, so he's like, and I, I see I've got a little uh, sign out there on the door and it says, uh, do not disturb podcast uh, in, in progress. It's cute. And so the dude, he goes, uh, dude, I, I saw the sign on your door too. I have a podcast. Do you have a podcast? So we just start talking and like, talk about neighborly. Somebody just yeah. knock on your door and be totally. like, Hey, I think we got some stuff in common. Um, and so turns out that it's Darren Pfeiffer who has a very cool podcast called the dangerous Darren show. And, uh, you know, is my neighbor. We live on the same street. And so we start talking about our podcasts, what we do. He's like, man, I got this, I uh, got this friend, Justin. He's a songwriter. Great guy. You guys should talk to him. And that's how we wound up uh, getting Justin on the show. But right here in studio today, 
with us is amazing drummer and amazing neighbor, Darren Pfeiffer. In that order. <laughs> Let's keep that in mind. Good drummer first, good neighbor second. Yeah, yeah, I know you've made a good living as a drummer. I don't know, as a neighbor, have you been able to, to pay the bills at all? Uh, no, not a nickel. No, no money in it. No, no, no money, money in, in the neighbor all. game. <laughs> uh, I, I've thought about, because I really like fixing things. I thought about putting up some signs around the neighborhood because I have a few days off from my awesome. job job. Like, need stuff fixed? Let yeah. me know. Let me know. That's Good incredibly neighbor. neighborly. So Darren is uh, was the drummer in the band Goldfinger, a band that uh, some of our listeners are very likely aware of, um, has done a, a ton of stuff. And we thought it would be cool as a songwriting podcast to bring, um, you know, we normally talk to musicians. So I thought it'd be great to talk to a drummer. Oh, yeah. ouch. Uh, Yikes. Uh, where's the bazing? So soundtrack. many bad drummer jokes but out there. Boom. What's a trumpet? Rim shot, yeah. <laughs> 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 but no, we thought it would be interesting to, to um, talk about, because we raised a question uh, a few weeks back when um, Charlie Watts died. We were talking on the podcast about um, what bands are not that band without the drummer. And, you know, we talked about the Stones kind of don't seem like the Stones without Charlie. Metallica kind of not Metallica without Lars. The band kind of in the band without Levon. You know, there's certain um, and we're not picking on drummers here. I mean, there's Rush. You could, you could say Rush for yeah, sure. Rush. You, you Goldfinger. Could say, you could no, say. <laughs> they're, they're fine without me. <laughs> you know, so and we're not picking on drummers here. You could say bass player. You could say guitar player. You could say whatever. But there's certain bands where, you know, it's it's the drummer just feels like hey, you can't replace that guy. Um, and so I thought it'd be interesting as a as a drummer um, to talk about when you're playing in a band, when you're dealing with songs that people have written. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're a good drummer, you're conscious of that. You know, like how do you approach drumming? if you're sensitive to actual song structure or, or honoring, you know, what maybe somebody brought into the band. You know, there's a part of me that wants to say early on in Goldfinger's career, I wanted to go crazy and show off my chops as much as possible, but I really didn't. I had them. I had all the punk rock chops, all the fills that I had, the speed from playing hard rock and metal in my early years right. and then getting into punk and knowing what, what it took to, to play punk. And throughout that whole musical journey, the theme of it, through most of it, was keep it simple, stupid. Hmm. Like, just play the fucking beat. Like, listen to, listen to Charlie Watts. Yeah. yeah. And maybe not Neil Peart, but listen to Charlie Watson. He just locks it down. Right. Yeah. He plays some cool stuff here and there, little shuffles and fills and plays right. with his hi hat a lot. But but just keep it simple. So when I joined Goldfinger, John was like, dude, do like a million miles an hour drum fills all throughout the whole song. I'm like, no. Nah. <laughs> like, right. well, that's what the circle jerks did. I'm like, well, that's cool for the circle jerks. But <laughs> I go, I want to make each fill that we play in these songs to be like my grandmother swearing. And then he looked at me and he goes, what do you mean your grandmother swearing? I'm like, did you ever hear your grandmother swear? He's like, once in a while. I go, wasn't it shocking? <laughs> so, like, when, when, like, when she's talking, everything's fine, and all of a sudden, I know where she's like, fuck this! <laughs> You're like, oh, my God! <laughs> Grandma just said, fuck this! <laughs> and same with drumming. Like, I, I want to keep it simple, keep it simple. Even with punk, you can just lock down a beat, lock down a beat, lock down a beat, hit a cymbal here, hit a cymbal there. But then when it comes time to play that ferocious 16th note fill... It's going to sound amazing. Yeah, make it count. And then when we got signed and started working with um, Mojo Records, which was started by a guy named um, Jay Rifkin, who was the main engineer and mixer uh, engineer for Hans Zimmer. Hmm. 
when I when I got together with Jay Rifkin and we started to record our first record, he had the same mantra like, "Yeah, keep it simple, darn perfect." Mm. Yeah. And the band was like, "No, do something stupid, do something crazy. You're a great drummer, double bass, like fills." I'm like, "Nah, simpler the better." Hmm. I mean, there are some ferocious drum fills on those records, and but I, I tried to keep it as simple as, as possible because yeah. I wanted John Feldman, another great songwriter. We all know what he's done in the production world and songwriting yeah. world. Um, we don't see eye to eye these days, but I will never tear the man down yeah. uh, and his ability to produce or write a song. So I knew John as a songwriter early, very yeah. early. When I yeah, first yeah. met him and I heard his demo, I was like, had no name on it, just his, uh, no, no Goldfinger, just his name and a phone number. And I was like, dude, your songs are f- so good. Yeah. He's like, we should jam. Let's jam. So I jammed and he saw what I could do. He begged me to be in the band. Mm-hmm. Right? But again, keep just I just tried to keep it let the melody do the talking mm. yeah. let the lyric and the vibe do the talking and when there's time for me to do a fill and the singer's not singing and this is something I also do live never fill over a singer well it's funny to me to you know we're talking about drumming as a science and songwriting as a science and how they meet together and I think about you know sort of the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of busy drummers would be a guy like Neil Peart you know I would think who's was fantastic and a legend right but also the guy that wrote the lyrics huh and it's funny to me to think that neil was responsible for the songs and their content but played all over them right at the same time and i, I guess for certain bands you can kind of like well that's the thing that's the thing that they do on the other end of the spectrum i think of a guy like don henley who was a main songwriter for the eagles but the drummer but a very mm-hmm simple drummer who sang while he was playing right and you would think probably didn't want to do fills over his own vocal as well there are so many different approaches to the whole thing i i would like to ask you darren just we do this to each other all the time like little bar stool conversations if you were to think of the greatest writer drummer out there now so, there are writers that drum and drummers that write and i don't know how we make a distinction between the two <laughs> But it's same, really. Yeah, you know, you know, and then you think of a band that's like an instrumental band. Everybody's writing, you know, whether they're part of like the lyric part of. But you know, Paul McCartney's a drummer. Stevie Wonder's a drummer. We said Don Henley, Neil Prince, Peart. Prince. Great, you, know, you mentioned you mentioned Neil Peart being able to write incredible lyrics. Yeah, he kind of fell into that because the band were like, they noticed that he was a he was he was a book nerd. Yeah. He brought books on tour, tons of them. I'm like, you're pretty well-read, Neil. He's like, yeah, I like to read. He's like, you want to give a shot at the lyrics? <laughs> He's like, sure. And his lyrics were really good. And his melodies were really good. That is a perfect storm of three guys that were meant by by the universe to be in the same yeah. room together. You mentioned Don Henley. He's a great example. Phil Collins, would, would, oh, you know, an, sure. another great songwriter who stepped from behind the drums and played. Prince, obviously, Stevie Wonder and, and Paul McCartney. Uh, Paul McCartney seemed to have the, uh, uh, an innate sense of what the drums needed to do. Yeah. Uh, in, in the Beatles song, you know, which raises the question: Who was the best drummer in the Beatles? Oh, by far it was Paul McCartney. I think he would smoke Ringo if they went head to head. Personally, yeah. that's just my personal. No, opinion. I would think that's probably true as well. Yeah, I but agree. John could play, and I'm sure George could too. You know, Poor Ringo. Ringo was a great drummer. <laughs> well, Ringo was a great drummer for the Beatles, though, because there were these really innovative parts, these these musical things that weren't just backbeat. They weren't just sort of like you know, uh, undergirding the song. But they were parts of their own. You, you can, I always think anytime you can identify a song by the fill as it's coming in, like the fill at the beginning of something, I go, well, that, that really did something. That really added something kind of magical to that song. But um, 
I'm sure that Paul could have done it too. <laughs> <laughs> I think Ringo was kind of a uh, kind of a punk drummer in a way because they they were like such a live band in the early days. Mm. You know, Paul wasn't playing any drums on the records in the early days. It was only when they really got into like the studio as as much of an instrument as the instruments are, and they really mm-hmm. like that's when Paul's like. If you watch some of those early videos, like '64 of the Beatles playing live, like Ringo is getting after it. Yeah. Like he was like aggressive. Yeah. Uh, people weren't playing drums like that. No, time. you're right. He was hitting hard. He was having fun doing it. Yeah. He was shuffling the hat. He was moving side to side. Yeah. 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 Some tasty fills. Yeah. I like Ringo as a drummer. What do you guys think about the idea of the without a good drummer, you can't have a great band? I guess I have to think of like a, a great band that doesn't have a good drummer. Well, there's no drums in bluegrass. It's a great bluegrass band. It's amazing musicians without it, drums. It can carry percussion without a drum. Yeah. 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 With the way it slaps the instruments. And yeah. It creates that percussive attack. Well, uh, if, if, if we take the question a little deeper, can you have a great band with a bad drummer? No. <laughs> bad drummer, no. But with a mediocre drummer that just kind of just does the job, sure. Right. I really strongly, and you guys are songwriting guys, I really strongly believe it's the song, yeah. not mm-hmm. the drums. Yeah. But the drums are bad? Yeah. Yeah. But you'll never, as an engineer, an audio engineer, you'll never record a bad drummer. You, you might record him and go, that's great, Bob, see you later. And then, <laughs> I, and then you call in a, what's called a ghost drummer. I've done a few ghost drumming sessions in my life. Really? Um, sure. Where I've come in and the producer's like, I need you to play this note for note. Right. Except but not, in time. But not note for note, if you know what I mean. But fix it. So I've had to sit there and learn like the song with those really, really bad fills. Right. Yeah. But just clean them up. And then later on, I've seen these producers and they say... What happened with that session? They're like, did the guy know? And he's like, he had no idea. Wow. He's like, well, I rip. Wow. <laughs> and he, what'd you say to him? He's like, I just spent hours, you know, quantizing it and right. beat detecting it and <laughs> nudging regions and, you know, putting in hybrids, yeah. hybrid toms and kick sounds. And, right. and yeah, that's what you sound like. <laughs> you know, sometimes I think there's, there are personality and character traits that exhibit themselves in our, in our work and our music and even the things we do podcasting. And I'm curious if the way that you always looked at drumming in terms of like serving the overall, you know, bigger picture, is that something that you take into podcasting as well? Because in a way you have to sort of lift your, your subject up while you sort of play a supporting role on the Dangerous Darren podcast as well. Wow. Poignant. I never thought of that before. That, right? <laughs> wow. That's what we do here at Song Crack. I don't know how to answer that. I guess I'm just going to say yes. <laughs> with a question mark? Sure. If you say so. Yeah, I love, I, Paul I always, says it. I love the yes with a question mark. Yes? Yes. Uh, yes. <laughs> like, is that the right answer? Is that what you wanted? <laughs> I mean, I guess so. I want my podcast to be entertaining. I want people to be hooked right away. Yeah. And when you're recording a song, you want the engineer and the producer to when they're tracking your drums to go, okay, this guy's locking it down. Yeah. Like we're probably going to get it on the first take. Yeah. And we'll do second and third just for shits and giggles. But yeah, this is great. So with the podcasting world, I want to come in like a bull and have people be entertained or try to entertain them immediately. Yeah. Hook them, hook them in. Like you got me Yeah. for the next 55 minutes. Okay. What are you going to talk about Darren? Well, Darren, thanks for coming by, and thanks for introducing us to Justin. It was great to, uh, to yeah, speak Yeah, Justin's with him. A, a, a legend. I love the guy to death. We've yeah. worked together on many projects, and uh, he's, he's one of my go-to producers, I call, when I have uh, a question or a song that needs to be written, or in certain cases, some money <laughs> that falls into my lap, Right. Yeah. and some artist needs some songs real fast. I right. go, Justin, you working right now? Yeah, what's up? Uh, you want some money? 
<laughs> but yeah. you are a good neighbor. Yeah, what a good <laughs> really neighbor. Call He's like, money? he puts State Farm to shame. Totally. Yeah. <laughs> That's so, funny. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so great. I hope that, that all of our listeners have neighbors as cool as Darren Pfeiffer. Yeah. And uh-huh. if you don't, then you can go listen to the Dangerous Darren podcast, and you'll feel like Darren's your neighbor because you're listening to him talk right there, too. Or find so a house in this neighborhood and just move in. Totally. Yeah, just move in. We got room. <laughs> we got, uh, I think I've seen a couple for sale signs on the street recently. So yeah, come on down. Be part of our world. Well, thanks for having me, guys. This was a blast. Well, that was a good time talking to Dangerous Darren. And Scott, you know what else is dangerous? What's that? Writing a song with no idea of how you're going to demo it. Mm, you good know? point. You, you don't want to get down that road. If you are a songwriter and you're writing great songs, don't you want to have people hear them in their best possible format? Yeah, you don't want to put out something that's all like sounding all crappy and yeah. you know nobody can tell what the song is really all about. Exactly. And especially if you want to get to the next level, have your songs heard by record labels, you know, get on the radio, make you famous, turn you into the king of the world. You can't <laughs> do that with an iPhone voice memo. So we recommend, and you've heard it here before, we recommend that you go to the fine people at Pearl Snap Studios to get a high quality demo made of your song because you know what? Your song deserves it. So if you are a songwriter, but you find production frustrating and you get lost in Pro Tools and you find yourself pulling out your hair and it's a creativity killer, that's when you need a guy like Justin at Pearl Snap Studios to, to come alongside you. That's that's one of the building blocks in your team. And the way to find him is at pearlsnapstudios.com. And this time, if you tell him Songcraft sent you, they'll care. Part two. Justin Gray is a Canadian-born, Los Angeles-based songwriter, record producer, music executive, and tech entrepreneur. His various projects have sold in excess of 40 million copies and earned more than 8 billion streams worldwide. He has collaborated with a diverse range of artists, including Avril Lavigne, Mariah Carey, John Legend, Louis Fonsi, Joss Stone, Glenn Campbell, and many others. He has scored several number one hits around the globe, including one of China's biggest hits of 2020 with Universal Music artist Sonny. His extensive film and TV work includes Toy Story 4, Melissa McCarthy's Life of the Party, Hannah Montana, Beverly Hills 90210, Modern Family, Lethal Weapon, Hawaii Five-O, and many others. He has been a guest speaker at Canadian Music Week and South by Southwest, and has been a lecturer for master classes in songwriting and production at Berklee College of Music, USC Thornton School of Music, and UCLA. Justin, welcome to Songcraft. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's great to to speak with you. Um, I know that you are based here in LA, um, where we're based as well. Um, and of course, a lot of songwriters and and music business folks are are headquartered here. But it seems like everybody comes from somewhere else. You know, we we both originally came yeah. from Nashville, um, and I understand that you were born in Montreal, Canada. Um, so I'd love to hear a bit about your very early years and and kind of how you began to start saying as a kid maybe that music thing is something that I actually want to do with my life well yeah Montreal the hotbed of music in Canada (laughs) right Um, it's not the hotbed of music in Canada (laughs) well it's funny actually you know music music it has been my fault was my fallback career um I I always loved it um we had music in the house my dad was a um you know, ha- had a, a record deal in the '60s with his band. He never, he never really fully realized his dream of being a, um, you know, a, an, an artist himself. He he pivoted uh, in the late '60s, and when he got married to my mom, and and um, ended up going into the family business. So he was always very supportive of the music stuff. But in in truth, my backup was music. My initial 
goal as any, uh, you know, self-appreciative young Canadian boy was to be a professional hockey player. So (laughs) I was actually a professional hockey player until I was sort of forced into retirement at at 19 years old with chronic shoulder injuries. But, um, you know, many many of the the players that I was playing with ended up having very long uh, and successful NHL hockey career. So you don't you don't see a lot of uh, athletes pivot into music, no. but uh, yet here I was when I was uh, sort of officially twenty, um, going to college, uh, and I actually had been producing and writing songs, you know, from the point I, from the time I was like ten, eleven years old. So um, emotionally, it was an easy pivot, but um, you know going from being a professional athlete to trying to make music your career uh it could be daunting especially if you were my parents i'm sure they were they probably would have been a lot more excited had i decided to go into you know law or something which i did consider at one point but you know i couldn't do it there there is so much uh, in that that i can't even decide which direction to go now but i've never heard anyone <laughs> refer to music as their plan b right. um that, i know right that's amazing in and of itself and then you know i i was I was looking at, at your career and your credits, and your it's an incredibly diverse portfolio. And I was I was gonna mm-hmm. say, you know, you're the only person that I could think of that we could, you know, introduce you by saying he's written with everyone from Glenn Campbell to Dwight Howard. <laughs> and now that I know that you were actually a professional athlete yourself, yeah. the connection with r- doing music with a professional athlete, and for folks that don't know, Dwight Howard is a former Laker who became a Laker again, and now who has become a Laker again. Um, I, I have to just find out how that happened. You know, um, <laughs> it, it, it is true. I have a, I've had a very uh, broad range of experiences um, creatively in this business. Um, you know, work again, it's funny, you know, I, I always find myself able to, and if you, you don't know me well enough to know that I'm not a particularly braggadocious person, but I do always find myself able to bring up relevant um creative relationships I've had pretty much in any conversation, you know? So if I'm in a room, I could tell people I worked with Glenn Campbell. And yet I can also tell people that I, you know, this year I had a number one K-pop song with, you know, a group called Super M. So (laughs) uh, I, I, and, and, and this, and it's a career that's very thank, thankfully, you know, spanned, you know, like 24 years or something now. So um, yeah, it, it, it has, it has been pretty bad. The, the Dwight Howard thing was, was kind of unusual. Uh, as, to be honest, anytime someone cuts a record, I think it's unusual. I'm like, really? Okay, that's <laughs> they like me. You know, what was it, Sally Field? Like, they really like yeah. me. You know, um, but um, but we we got a call. <laughs> it's funny. Oh my I'm god! Sorry I'm sorry, I'm starting this with this story, story by the way. But uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I got to tell you, of all of these situations I found myself in, this was not the one I was expecting to talk about. I, I know, um, like, <laughs> it's just the one that jumped off the page at me. I was like, all right, I'm going in on Dwight Howard immediately. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Next, you're going to ask me about my Wayne Gretzky sessions, I suppose. But you know, please, um, that didn't happen. Okay. No, that didn't happen. Um, no, the, the the Dwight Howard thing. We we got a call. Um, from my publisher at the time, I think I, I, if I remember, and we had gotten asked to pitch songs to to Dwight Howard. So I wrote the song. We had originally wrote this song called "Need to Read." We thought that was funny, um, <laughs> and uh, which wasn't, which wasn't, and that ended up not being the song that we did. But um, I wrote it with a, a a woman named Michelle Lewis, who's gone on to do amazing work 
writing music for um, for for kids television shows, most notably Doc McStuffins. Mm. So if anybody has kids that are probably around like 14 years old right now, you probably hate her, but she's <laughs> really happy with what she did. Um, and so we so we wrote this song and and we got a chance to to spend some time with Dwight and uh, and it's weird like the mic stand couldn't like couldn't get high enough. <laughs> so like it's just, um, but it was actually it was actually unique because it was we were working with and I can't remember his name now for the life of me, but it was a um, a guy that had been that had done a lot of productions for like athletes like Ber- what was the name Bernie Williams was kind of like this jazz guitar player I think it was Bernie Williams yeah, yeah he was a uh, Yankee. played for the Yankees yeah. yeah right and so so this guy had somehow created this niche of making music for professional athletes and they were doing this project that was um if i remember correctly it was sort of like uh uh it was it was it was a charity based project so we were more than happy to get involved in like and i thought hey one day i'm going to tell this story and yeah. here we are telling this story <laughs> so uh you know that's it happened thank you universe <laughs> well it, i mean it's amazing and, and clearly not uh, not even close to the only you know recognizable name that that pops out in your catalog i mean i'm looking at names like Josh Stone. I'm looking at names like Mariah Carey, um, and so yeah. you, you've had a, an incredibly wide-ranging career. You know what? What I'm interested to ask you is, you know, songwriters and producers are. Uh, you talk about self-made people, and there really mm-hmm. is no sort of uh, schooling that you can go through and job placement and some sort of like you know, hierarchy that you can just pass. Through. You just kind of have to figure it out as you go along, and. At what point did you start to look at this and say, hey, I think this is starting to work. I think this is going to, you know, what what project was it for you? Maybe in the late 90s, it looks like, or early 2000s, yeah. when you started to say, hey, yeah. I think this is actually something that's working. Back in 1997, <laughs> exactly. um, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I think that, um, y- you know, so again, I always say like c- cutting my teeth in Canada was actually very helpful for me. Um, and so uh, I, I was, like I said, I mean, I'll just make a joke, but like a hundred years ago, I was producing a uh, my own records. My I was making my own music and I'd almost gotten a record deal uh, with Arista in the late 80s when I was like 16 years old or something. You know, when I was away playing hockey as a professional, I also had the, my band on the side and we were sort of these like this prodigious kind of very successful high school band in Toronto. And uh, we almost got signed to Arista Records again by total and complete fluke. Um, we were contacted by an A&R person who I still actually maintain a relationship with today named Tom Sarig, who was um, kind of like a junior A&R person at Arista at the time working with Clive Davis. And um, he was really interested in our band. And for me, that was like the first moment kind of where oh, wait a minute, we're getting some validation here mm. outside of kind of like our school friends or our friends and family or whatever, right? Like we had gone into the studio and made some demos. I remember and I had had this epiphany. I was like, wait a minute, like anybody can just go into a studio? And so <laughs> we found this studio in uh, Toronto. Um, it's not there anymore, called Exit, X-I-T. Uh, and uh, I managed to save up 100 bucks, which bought us at the time five hours of recording time. And uh, again, just to put a little bit of a timeline on this, um, we couldn't afford, I couldn't afford, I didn't take into consideration the cost of purchasing the DAT at the end of the session with, the, you know, with the, <laughs> where we would bounce down the demo, yeah. right? And so I was like, oh no, I, I'm not spending another, I don't have another $20, right? To, for the DAT or whatever it costs at the time. So I pulled out this like type two 
you know, TDK cassette. I was like, I'll just bounce it to this or whatever. You uh-huh. know, I, I mean, whatever. We didn't know, but um, but but that was the moment where sort of like I was like, wow, this is incredible. And funny enough, uh, Exit became a, an interesting point for me in my career because as I started to do more recording. That was really the only studio that I was comfortable in and I worked in. And then there I met a partner um, who had engineered some sessions named Ellie Rosen. And we started doing some stuff together. And And then I started to realize that, um, you know, I was in some local bands that were getting a little bit of notoriety, but nothing really ultimately finally connected. Uh, but what I really realized at the time early in my career was I loved the studio. I didn't love um, being on stage. And especially now, years later, working with people like Amy Winehouse and people like Joss Stone and people like John Legend. I mean, these, you know, they're not only insanely creative, but they they are so good at at being public facing as artists. And I knew that that wasn't for me. I didn't love that. Right. Mm-hmm. And so uh, when I realized I could transition into being a, a behind the scenes and understand that there was a career there, um, I my my partner at the time, Ellie, who I had only worked with as my engineer, uh, we decided to start a little production company. We put an ad in the back of a magazine in Toronto called Now Magazine, and we just were like, "Let's see what happens." And so we used my my demos as bit as creative calling cards, and we started to make a little bit of inroads in the um, Canadian music scene, specifically in the Toronto music scene. This is all post my hockey career, and um, the first project we did was was this acid jazz band again talk about putting a timestamp on things was this acid jazz <laughs> band from Toronto um, but the keyboard player in the band was in a sort of like establishing more well-known Toronto band uh, called Jack Soul and he was like hey I love what you guys did over here maybe you'll come and help me work w- with Jack Soul and so we did a record and that was the first band in 95 that I worked with that got a record deal they got signed to BMG um, and then we, you know, like I, I, I tell the story a lot as the story of the red paperclip. If your listeners don't know it, go look it up. It's this really interesting story about how somebody traded a red, pep, red paperclip all the way up to eventually owning a home just through doing trade. So it was how did I, how, how was I able to leverage sort of like these mini successes and kind of build and build and build? I also say this. If you told me back in 1995 that, hey, in 26 short years from now, <laughs> you know, you're going to be just fine. I was yeah. like, I would probably not have done that. And I think that, <laughs> you know, that's that's part of the challenge, I think, with a lot of young songwriters um, is that uh, there's a certain impatience. Hmm. And uh, and I'm actually very grateful for now, of course, in retrospect, looking back for the journey it's been because, you know, I had friends of mine that had insane successes very early in their careers and they're not even doing music anymore you know they're 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 out of the game um because i just don't think that they were emotionally or even professionally prepared for anything to 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 happen so thank god when i get into a room with somebody that is a either a well-established artist or even somebody that's new and up and coming um i just feel more like prepared for it or something now you know so uh, in yeah. terms of, of, you know, starting out in Canada and mm. then making your way to Los Angeles, talk a bit about, you know, professionally why you decided to, to make that move and, and what impact that relocation had on your career. Oh, that's such a good question. Um, so it just kind of felt like for me around 2004, um, I just felt like I had tapped the ceiling in Canada with what I was able to do. And, you know, Canada, 
although it's always been an incredibly creative place, it's not like it is now, right? Like this is pre-Drake, this is pre-Bieber, mm. this is pre, you know, it, you know, any really globally renowned Canadian export artists. You know, it's like yeah. this was like the era of Avril was kind of bubbling up and and Nelly Furtado and some 41 and you know so you know it, it was sort of like starting to reestablish itself you know for many years Canada here you know here's a name from the past Canada was sort of like Anne Murray right. and you nice. know and and the guess who and Loverboy you know what I mean like it was <laughs> and Lover, Loverboy oh my gosh <laughs> April Wine you know yeah man. can we just talk about can it, you know can we just talk about Canadiana rock that would actually be a lot more fun let's go um, <laughs> <laughs> but but uh, good reference to Loverboy. So 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 Canada was only now starting to reemerge, and uh, I was working. My my attorney um, at the time uh, was a guy by the name of Chris Taylor, who has gone on to do incredible things. Uh, as an attorney, he represented Drake for many many years, helped him get his record deal, and kind of was very instrumental in his evolution as an artist. And so Chris was was one of my best friends, still is. Um, and I was really watching the way that he was doing things in his career. And I was saying, okay, how do I apply it, that mentality to what I do? So he was traveling all the time, right? Like he was constantly leaving Canada. He was going to New York. He was primarily New York and LA. Um, but I knew for me where I really wanted to be was, uh, you know, I was, you know, this is where, this is when Sweden was kind of really emerging as like the sort of the pop hotbed. Yeah. And so, you know, I really wanted to get to Sweden. And so I convinced my publisher, um, to, 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 to fund a trip to Sweden. And so I went to Stockholm and I started, that's when I uh, got in the room and started writing with, with artists like Robin, who at the time was kind of in this phase from, she had just had a massive hit to kind of what she, what she was going to do next. Um, people like Jurgen Ellefsen, and uh, and managed to get in the room and 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 write with these people, and then I went to the UK, and then that's where I started to build my relationships there. So, like Chris, I was beginning to travel around a lot because I felt like Canada was limited in where I in what I wanted to do. Um, also, Canada was very much rock centric, hmm. uh, and still is pretty rock, even though the Drake is you know obviously a massive star. But Canada is still a rock country at heart, and um, that's not really where my strengths were. So. Yeah, for for four years, I just started doing the circuit of um, mostly the UK, LA, New York, Nashville from time to time. Uh, And I did that for about four years and it was expensive, but I knew that that's what I needed to do. And around 2006, uh, I had an artist that um, we were planning to move to the UK with our, at that time, our, our only daughter. But then I had an artist that I had signed and developed that got a record deal at Capitol Records. Um, and so I was like, well, I'm going to use that as the opportunity. Ultimately, LA is where I want to be. I feel like that's where I'm the, you know, I feel my, my manager then at the time was in LA. And uh, so we went for it and we just kind of risked it all. And I think that, you know, it just is, you know, I don't want to sound like inspirational. It's not meant to be that. But, you know, you guys know, like this is not a, um, a this is not a, a, a professional pursuit for the faint of heart. And, right. hmm. You know, you have to be you. You have to be more willing to, to to accept the failures, uh, than that. There's way more failures than successes. I bet you every single songwriter. I don't care if you're talking to Benny Blanco, like, you know, who's the biggest in the world, right? I mean, like, there's more failures than successes even at his level. Yeah. And you just have to be so prepared to understand, the consequences of that of those decisions, good and bad. Yeah. You know, sometimes things don't come as fast as you want. Sometimes things don't get as big as you want. You think, oh, this is it. I've you know, I, I mean, Mariah was a was a great example. Like, 
you know, I have this single, this Mariah Carey single on this film that's going to be the biggest film of the year, and this is it. And, you know, of course, guess what? It wasn't the biggest film of the year, and it wasn't her biggest single. And it's like, okay, well, huh, you know, that, well, let's move on. Let's keep it moving. Right. And so I think that it's, it's, I always say it's funny. You put the most sensitive people in the harshest business. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's true. <laughs> you know, it's like, think about that, right? It's like, you know, can you imagine if you were a bank teller and there was somebody constantly critiquing that every transaction you made at the <laughs> bank? I mean, right. no, you couldn't handle that. Yeah. You're only you're, as you're good as your last hamburgers. deposit. Yeah. <laughs> you're right. Yeah. Actually, a friend of mine, Ron Frey, used to say in the music business, you, you, you're hot shit until you're not shit. <laughs> I was like, wait, that's kind of, that's kind of good. I'm going to use that one. So that, um, you know, it, it's you bring up the Mariah Carey thing, and it's interesting because I, I think for a lot of a lot of writers and producers, you know, w- when you're a kid, if someone told you, "Hey, this will be your your list of credits," you'd be mm-hmm. like, "Oh my gosh, I can I can I can retire the the day after mm-hmm. I write a song with Mariah Carey, I can retire," and mm-hmm. and it doesn't always, you know, I, I shouldn't even say always, it doesn't turn out to be that way. You know, you write a song with Mariah Carey, and then you have to wake up the next day and and go back to work. Um, and talk a little bit yeah. about that, and and that's that's even if the song you know did what you might have expected it to do, which it sounds like maybe it didn't. But you know the idea no. that you you <laughs> you build a resume, and and every prominent name that features in the resume certainly helps when it comes to you know your own name recognition and things like that. But talk about the sort of even keel mentality that you have to have from one day working with a legend, you know, who everybody was jaws drop open at their name. And then probably mm-hmm. going two days later to work with maybe an unsigned, you know, developing artist that you're working with. Yeah. Well, it's funny, you know, at, the after effects of of anybody of uh, with name recognition that I work with is I always picture like two people in the back of the funeral going, did you know once upon a time he worked with Mariah Carey? <laughs> like, that's, like, you know, that, that's kind of the credit. That's the kind of credibility I think it, it sort of gets you in yeah. a weird way. You know, um, did you know he worked with Glenn Campbell? It's like they sort of become like story touch points. But, you know, when I look at, um, you know, honestly, like when I look back, honestly, at, at, at what I consider um, major moments in which my career sort of amplified itself, it was never around um the the sort of that sort of name the the name recognized artist right it was like you know i worked with 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 amy winehouse when there was there was no amy winehouse mm-hmm. right i worked with joss stone there was no joss stone yeah. you know these people uh and who who are these unbelievable artists um you know they go on to have this this you know you know atmospheric success and you become a part of the story that they're telling. And, and it's, I think actually, and I had a manager once that I was working with that said, you know, it's great to go and get Avril Lavigne cuts and singles. That's cool. But those aren't the things that are really ultimately going to push your career. The things that are ultimately going to push your career is when you help unlock that sound, mm-hmm. you find that song for somebody, you're the person that is connecting, helping that artist connect to their long-term success. And so, uh, and, and, and that's why I continue to try and find young establishing artists that I think are really exceptional because it's, um, you know, they're the ones with the promise. Yeah. It's in, in, you know, I don't know. I, it's, but yeah, I, I don't know if that answers the question or not, but it, absolutely. It's, it's, yeah, I, I find that there's so much satisfaction of, there's so much more satisfaction watching something blow up. That's not supposed to hmm. versus something that, you think is going to blow up that doesn't quite get there. I don't think your expectation will ever be met 
when you have a Mariah Carey single come right, out. You know right. what I mean? I, I, just, I just think it's an impossible expectation to meet. Um, whereas, you know, I work with a young artist and they crack 100,000 streams on Spotify and I'm thrilled to death, right? Yeah. Um, that's, that's, that's an amazing part of that story that you've built with them. So, yeah, yeah. it's interesting. By the way, just before we go into anything else, I just want to tell you, uh, like the list of people that you've spoken to is is bananas. I can't even believe that we're having a conversation <laughs> together. It's like, I'm like, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, nobody, why would anybody want to listen to this when they can hear Elvis Costello, you know, but whatever, <laughs> like, uh, you know, or, or any other list of beyond insane songwriters <laughs> and creatives that you guys have gotten to talk to. It's like, I'm just like, wow, wow. this is a real moment for me. And I, I'm very, very grateful. Oh, cool, we, man. We yeah. kind of feel the same way about the whole thing. Like I, I've been watching this, um, documentary about the early days of Motown and every time Smokey mm -hmm. Robinson comes on the screen I look at my wife and I'm like we talked to him like, <laughs> I know <laughs> freaks me out yeah, right totally <laughs> it's crazy but you know but it, I think it's something to be said of this camaraderie or this community that songwriters have with each other across across generations and um it's you know it's it's a very weird um what's the word I'm looking for vocation that we've I don't think we've chosen. I think this chosen us. Yeah. We we sit in a room and we pull rhymes and melodies and 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 music out of the air and we create something that exists beyond a hundred generations from now. Yeah. And I just think that there's um, you can't help but not be intrinsically linked to everybody. Is that yeah. weird? Is that a weird thing to say? No, and it, it makes sense um, in that, like, you know, the, the things that we talk to an, an Elvis Costello or a, a Linda Perry or whomever about, you know, uh, Smokey Robinson, it's actually comes down to the same human journey. You know, it's the same type of mm -hmm. pressure. It's the same ups and downs, you know, the types of disappointments that you're referring to uh, compared to the, the things that you celebrate that people might not expect are celebrated. And sometimes, you know, you can find the same, you have to g jump through the same mental and emotional hoops um, when you're doing a production campaign for Chevrolet, uh, mm -hmm. at late nights, um, not sure what they exactly want, <laughs> having to go back and try it again and again, that that you would find with these other artists that we've talked to. And I think that's one of the things that's so compelling for us is to find the human element and the human journey that's, that, that is the common thread for, for all of us who are trying to do this. Yeah, 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 well said. You know, the, the world of songwriting has changed so much and we've kind of alluded to the fact that you've done a lot of different things and and you know you you've worked with a lot of different type of artists whereas you know there was a time where you know a, a songwriter was like kind of a, a new york pop writer or they were a nashville mm -hmm. country person or you know they were a la rock you know writer or whatever there was there was a time where where people kind of had lanes you know and they and they mm -hmm. tended to stay in them and and i think that that you know has has changed maybe partially um as a result of of creative boundaries have kind of fallen and, and probably there's a commercial you know there's a, a monetary aspect to that too that that people um you know you, you can't make the same kind of living as a as a songwriter today that maybe you could have 25 35 years ago um unless you are willing to be flexible and and to do a lot of different um types of things and, and one thing that we've definitely seen this big increase in is writers that we speak to who have you know, wound up having these huge hits in other territories. And, and you know, I look at your 
um, resume and, and writing songs like Somos Uno with Luis Fonsi um, mm-hmm. or, you know, having a number one in China with The Wrong Things by Roy Wang. I mean, these are the mm-hmm. type of things that are becoming increasingly common. Um, and I'd love to, to hear your thoughts as a writer about stepping into a very different cultural setting and, and a very different type of, of market and how you kind of bring your instincts and what you do into those settings while also kind of recognizing that like, Hey, I might be in a situation here that, that might not be as familiar with what I may maybe was doing 20 years ago, you know? Yeah. The red paper clip, right? It's how do you take and leverage one success and turn it into another? Um, <clears throat> I think that it's, well, first of all, I, I think that what, what, again, I think where a lot of songwriters don't get enough credit is that we're we're all entrepreneurs. We have to be, right? Like, it doesn't matter even if you're if you have a publishing deal. I mean, we're entrepreneurial. We have to, mm. you know, h- how do we get into sessions, right? Our work begets more work. People have to like who we are and like the work that we do in order to get in those rooms yeah. to create relationships to cre- to plant another seed of opportunity, right? And who knows and how knows where that comes from. Um, but it's interesting, you know, when 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 you're talking about creating. Um, you know, let's say, quote unquote, successes outside of the U.S. It's like I say this. I've said this to other people. It's like, why would I want to limit 100 percent of my success to 4 percent of the world's population? That oh. makes no sense. <laughs> yeah. Right. Like, why? Why? Why wouldn't I try and expand my reach by any way possible to 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 96 percent of the rest of the world? Yeah. And so, you know, even like in the last um, in the last year, you know, last couple of years, yes, there's been a number one with Avril globally but you know i've had i think it's like something insane like 71 weeks now i produced and wrote um the number one album in new zealand with the biggest artist in the history of the country called 660 um you know or or the stuff that we've done in china you know i had a uh, uh, i was approached uh, about five years ago to produce a record or produce and write a record with an artist in china uh, she was based in canada but she was very very successful in china we wrote this song well that opened up the door to me creating relationships over there and and again the timing was such that i recognized that um you know there was a thirst that for for wanting to make um w- music that was that was competitive uh, in sort of in the western part of the world i walked in and and uh, ended up having a, a before roy actually had a massive a number one with probably one of the biggest artists in the history of China named Chris Lee. We had a song called Boss that went on to do incredibly well. In fact, we, um, to put it into perspective, it came out the same week as I can't remember what Taylor Swift single and everybody was like freaking out over, um, you know, how many streams Taylor Swift had. And that same week we had over 2 billion streams, right? Like just in China, but like nobody talks about it. Right. But it's, you know, so so just, just to sort of like put a bit of perspective around it. And so it, it, the the trick always for me was how how do I take this little seed and, and kind of, you know, amplify the growth, right? Is it more water? Is it more what? And, and, and try and, and try and uncover opportunities. um, And then, and, and just, and I also think what people don't realize is like nothing is, um, is is promised. And so you know you have to you have to really hone relationships and build them and grow them. And you know I still work with people that I met 20 years ago uh, yeah. doing music. So um, you know it's 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 a very much a you, you have to well again I'm not telling you guys something you don't know. It's about collecting friendships and relationships and growing with them. And you just never know when. 
um, those those seeds that you plant are going to start bearing that fruit. And so um, I guess really the, the long answer to a short question was uh, trying to recognize the opportunities when they present themselves to you and, and trying to um, uh, strategize how to, how to max. And sometimes they work and sometimes they don't, you know. Yeah. Um, but you, you just kind of have to do the best to entrepreneurialize, not sure that's a real word, your career. It is now. Um, <laughs> in a meaningful way, yeah. Do you think that, I mean, in a sense, I'm just sitting here thinking about the fact, you know, you, you started out in Canada. And so the, the idea of even coming to L.A. was already an international move in, in a way. Mm-hmm. And I, I wonder if that already kind of just broadened your horizons where, you know, uh, Americans, you know, God love us. We have a tendency to be a little myopic um, about our own our own borders. And but, you know, you already had to start out saying, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to leave my country and go somewhere else and, and follow opportunity where it lies. And that just seems to have never stopped. And you, you're like, OK, well, there it is in China and there it is, you know, here and there. Yeah, I, I, I mean, probably I really never thought of it that way. Um, but I mean, yeah, that makes sense, right? It's just an extension of the sort of um, ambition of trying to f- find where I want to go. Like it's, it's, you know, again, I, I say this a lot. I think I'm very realistic about the career that I've had. I've been, <clears throat> look, if, if, if this was me 20 years ago, looking at my career, I'd be envious, but I, you know, but have, but at the same time, you know, I have lots of friends that had, you know, beyond smashes yeah. uh, and they're, and they're miserable and they're unhappy and they're not even doing music. Yeah. anymore right like these are people that you know i knew people i'm not going to mention names or, or projects but i knew people that had you were on top of the world with the biggest songs you know ever written to that point um you know they're they're, they're not happy all they're trying to do is rechase that you know but yet i've had a man i've managed to have a career that's that's been consistently you know improving and upgrading year over year for more than 20 years so um you know in retrospect i'm quite grateful for the journey that it's been but uh you know Success is a very challenging um, uh, thing to have to deal with uh, if you get it. And I hope everybody gets it. It's what you do with it when you get it is the yeah. challenge, you know. Um, you, know I'm, you guys know that, though. Uh, you know, I want to ask you about one song in, in particular because it, it jumped out off the list to me. Um, in 2013, uh, I went and did uh, a run of small acoustic shows with my friends in 98 Degrees. Um, they had just had a new record uh-huh. come out called 2.0. And so yes. they were playing big shows at night, and then in the morning I would play radio shows with them just on my acoustic. Oh, cool. I was the side guy. And one of the songs that we played was a song called Impossible Things, um, yeah. which I really enjoyed playing, especially since I was the guy there with the acoustic. I was like, oh, this really lends itself to what I'm doing. It's kind of a, you know, this organic mm-hmm. thing that's sort of built around the acoustic. It was a, kind of a different sound for them. It was part of what made that record feel like a, a really fresh uh, record from those guys. Um, but mm-hmm. what's interesting about it is I'm, I'm looking at it, I'm looking at the credits for that whole record. Um, and that was a pitch opportunity. You wrote that with Shepard Solomon and Priya J. And I'm curious, just in terms of the, the scope of your career, how many pitch opportunities are you finding these days versus, you know, needing to be in the room with the artist? I mean, it seems like that's changed quite a bit over the years. I'm curious yeah. uh, how that's been for you. Well, um, not... <laughs> Not particularly successful, uh, you know, if I'm being just totally, completely honest. Um, you know, the idea of, of songs that ended up getting over the finish line um, always had significant artist contribution to it at some point. Um, you know, even, even, even the Mariah Carey record, um, you, know, uh, you know, artists like that, they don't get in the room to write with you, but they have a very strong opinion on 
what represents them musically mm. with respect to their brand. And so um, it's very seldom, at least for me, that we're just writing songs to pitch. You never know what headspace the artist is in. You know, uh, you know. I'm not going to mention a name. We just recently wrote, along with my friend of mine, Evan Bogart, who wrote like Halo for Beyonce and massive smash hit songs, like a history of, of being a beyond insanely successful songwriter. You know, we were writing Christmas songs for a very well-known artist. You know, it's pitching, writing for pitches is, is just, it's, a, it's such a shot in the dark. Yeah. You have no idea what they're, you know, what mindset they're in when they're listening to the song. You have no idea really where they're going in their personal lives in, in order for you to write something that feels like it resonates with who they are creatively. Um, and, and I also think it's very, very difficult to be authentic to the artist if you're not sitting there in the room with them. You know, I think mm-hmm. that's a very, I think it's a very hard task. I mean, you are being asked to pick a lock with 15 numbers. You know, I mean, yeah. on, uh, on, it almost feels like that. Yeah. And so, um, you know, but, but then again, it is also hard to get into the room. That's why I kind of want to want to pivot back to, you know, if you, if you're a, an, an aspiring songwriter, or even if you're a, a professional songwriter and you, f- and you find an artist that you love and that you believe in and you think is just like exceptional hitch your wagon to that train like Hmm. that or to that horse or put your cart i mean whatever whatever the analogy you want to come up with right but it's (laughs) like if you find somebody that you believe in and you can and you could help support them and you could be a part of their journey and that success creates success for you you are going to be just fine. Hmm. Um, it's it's. I think that there's too many writers that think oh, I'm going to pitch songs to, you know, not to Doja Cat or 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 Dua Lipa. Like, you know what? Like I have news for you. Those people work with people that they know and they trust and they have years of built relationships with. Yeah. Um, so that's a hard thing to do. Now, if you want to use that as a as a benchmark to try and write songs that could work for artists like that, amazing. You should go and do that. I think that those are great ways to hone your craft as a young, up-and-coming, aspiring songwriter. Um, but th- but but those are very. I just want to be total truth serum. Those are very hard doors to get into. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, for anybody, it, it doesn't matter. Like you know, again, I talk about Benny Blanco. Like Benny's amazing, but you know, believe it or not, there's times where he's sending songs to labels and they don't like them. Like right. everybody deals with that sort of rejection, and so. Um, but every song you write is going to be an opportunity to get better at what you do. Yeah, I think you make a great point there. I've told this story many times, but in my previous life, I was a a professional songwriter before I got into, you know, being more of a journalistic and historical, you know, type of of writer. And um, I remember being at this like brunch thing and I was going down uh, the the line and getting some food and, and there was this woman across from me and I was talking with her and, and I said, you know, oh, uh, how long have you been writing or, you know, whatever. And she goes, oh, I'm not the writer. My daughter is. She had this girl with her that was like 12 years old. And, you know, they were like nice people and we're talking and, and we're going down the line. And then they go, oh, would you like to join us at our table? And my thought process is there's a lot of important people in this room that I need to meet. There's a lot of people I, I should try to network with. And so uh, why am I going to sit down at the table with this 12 year old girl <laughs> who's mm-hmm. starting out that nobody's ever heard of? Um, and I was like, I oh, can't no, anticipate the punchline, you know? but I can tell you, I'm sure it's not going to be pretty. <laughs> yeah, right, right. <laughs> so I basically was like, no, nah, I'm going to go over and like hang out with some of these other people. And I was like, what was you guys names yeah. again? Like, Oh, this is my daughter, Taylor Swift. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, <laughs> and it's, it is that sort of thing of like, 
I think you make that great point of of everybody's trying to jump on the bandwagon of of the people who are already well established. Um, yeah. But yeah. having those eyes to say who has the potential, who has the talent, who's somebody that I can start working with early because you yes. know, those are also those people as they begin to move through their career are probably going to stay more loyal to those writers who were investing in them, um, you know, when they were just starting out, you know, instead of the, the flavor of the month. Yeah, with, without question. And, and I was even going to, I was even going to add one more point to that, which is, um, which is it, it's, it's, it also is a little bit of a reassurance that you have a, a good ear and I have a very similar story. I'm not, I'm certainly not trying to one up you because Taylor Swift is a massive superstar, but I remember one of my early A&R meetings, I went to New York and I was meeting with a, a, a fellow Canadian named David Bendith, who in the nineties had a tremendous run signing bands like um, Vertical Horizon. And he also produced the first Paramore record. And he was an A&R guy at RCA. And we had a conversation. He's like, Hey, you know, so nice to meet you. I'm a big fan of your work. I'm like, Oh, that's awesome. Me too. You know, we really kind of got, it. he's like, I got a couple of things here that I'm working on um, thinking about signing you know, would you be interested in getting together with either of them or both of them, you know? And so he plays me one thing and I'm like, yeah, this is really good. And he plays me another thing. He's like, yeah, this, you know, this guy is from, from Berkeley and he's just really, really talented, but, you know? And he, and I, I was like, yeah, I really like the first one, but I don't, I'm not crazy about the second one. It's like, it's like, it's just sounds like Dave Matthews and I'm not really up for it, you know? And of course that was John Mayer. I'm like, oops, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So that was similar to you. That was like that, right. this early, this early sort of like, oh yeah, let's, let's keep our, let's keep our, our options open here. Right. You know? <laughs> if, if only you could go back. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it, it does become a good story to tell though. Yeah, exactly. Um, one thing we haven't really touched on is the fact that you are a producer and songwriter and, mm, you know, yeah. Paul and I coming from a Nashville background, you know, we sort of grew up in a world where there was a lot of uh, just, you know, songwriters were one thing, producers were another, and occasionally they might overlap. But, you know, uh, now that's that's really like the lines are, are increasingly blurred. Um, mm -hmm. Would love to get your thoughts on, you know, if songwriting and production are two completely separate disciplines that you pursue alongside one another, or if they kind of bleed into one another and, and, and sort of become kind of the same thing in a way. You know, I, th I think the lines are a little bit more clearly defined in Nashville than they are, let's say, in L.A. Um, because, you know, in Nashville, you know, I've seen I've seen I've literally seen songs become massive smash hits in Nashville that were pitch demos of acoustic guitar and vocals. So I think that there's a, a very well, you guys know, right, there's like there's a very clear line of what a producer does and what a songwriter does. And, and there is some overlap too, but, but I, I you know, in, in, you know, in, in certainly at least in a lot of music that I do. Um, and I used to be a lot more um, prideful about making sure that I needed to also produce the songs. I, I'm really not like that anymore. It's like now I'm at the point where I hey, have somebody else um, can come in and, and make this better. I am 100% about it. Uh, because when I look at my career, I, I see the, the money that I've earned from royalties being a songwriter versus money that I've earned from royalties or even front ends as being a producer, right? It's like, that is not the same. Mm -hmm. And so, mm -hmm. you know, I've become a lot less precious about having to hold on to producing the music. Um, uh, but you know, again, when you listen to songs, there's, there's, there's a lot of songs that are driven by how a sample gets reworked or a particular, a particular sign or a synth line or a, um, you know, whatever, like uh, production is much more multidimensional or songwriting is much, in other words, is much more multidimensional than maybe it used to be, right? Like now 
a, you know, a song writer could be someone who just makes a track because they found a cool sample that they flipped. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think now that, 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 that the nature of how music is being consumed and written has evolved. So therefore, the, to me, the role has evolved a little bit yeah. um, in making sure that you know, part of being a producer, part of being a songwriter is also knowing which snare drum works for the song. I know that it's not really, but it's, but in many ways it is, right? Like creating the, the, the overall sonic uh, representation of the song is part of songwriting now. Hmm. And actually one thing that we didn't even discuss, which I think is interesting, um, and I'm not trying to bring it up in order to pivot the conversation, but how the style of songwriting has changed over the years, um, yeah. e even in the last 10 years, right? How music is being consumed and how songs are, you know, how, how the bridge is a lost art, you yeah. know, the, the, compared <laughs> to what it used to be, right? And so um, I think also part of it is, is, is being very acutely aware of how music is being consumed and how, and how songs are actually being written. Again, so I think that's where the sort of the producer, at least for me, the producer-songwriter um, line gets blurred. But, uh, you know, there's been tons of times where I've written songs and pitched demos and, um, and you know, the artist gets involved. Mariah Carey is actually a perfect example. We were, you know, that song was written um, as part of the film. We were collaborating with her uh, very much uh, long distance. She wanted to have Stargate produce the song. I was like, sure, great. Like there was, you know, I, I think that, that that's also a big mistake that a lot of, and, and by the way, this took me way too long to realize, which was don't let ego drive your decisions. Hmm. Uh, you know, it's it's like, in, in so, and I think that's been actually a way that I've been able to maintain a, um, an, a, 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 a improve every year over year, you know, as a creative music person and be able to pivot and find new opportunities because I've not let my ego get in the way of things. You know, ultimately, uh, you know, a friend of mine said, do you want to be right or do you want to win? Well, if you want to win and being right is not always necessarily the same thing. So if winning is you need to make some, you need to compensate in order to achieve really what the ultimate goal is, you do that. And so, again, when Stargate, who had just done Diamonds for Rihanna, want to produce your song for this major motion picture, why would you say no? Right. <laughs> yeah, like that at all. You don't. You <laughs> <Yeah>. say, yes. <laughs> you know, uh, <clears throat> and you just kind of look at every opportunity uh, on its face and try and maximize that um, in, in, the way, in, in as much possible. And it's funny, I, I will tell a quick story, which is not really related to this, but I really try and surround myself with with positive mentors that that can give me the the the, the truth and um, I remember I was signed to BMG publishing was I was signed there for many years I'm now at downtown but um, I remember having a conversation with Zach Katz who was at the time the president of um, uh, of BMG um, uh, in the US and um, I said my deals coming up I've recouped but I cannot go through this deal again it was really way too hard to recoup and I don't feel I have the support here and he said, you know, Justin, you do two things better than anybody in this company. You develop artists better than anybody, and you really know how to write music for film and TV. He says, do I think that you're going to go and get Ariana Grande cuts? Yeah, for sure. But that's not where I think your your future is. And, that, you know, that was, that was a pretty big pill to swallow. But yeah. I, I left the meeting, and I thought, you know, you're right. I started to do some – started focusing more on, on writing f music for film and TV. Um, and – you know, started to, what took three years to recoup my first option, I started to recoup my deals every six months um, based on artists that I was producing that ended up getting deals and putting records out and B, based on just writing music that I knew was working for film and TV. And, um, and, uh, and you know, again, so I think that if your ear is open to listen to other people who have only the best interest for you at heart, um, you know, it, it, that's that's a really easy way to 
to follow the path and stay on that critical path that you're trying to make for yourself, you know? And I, I don't really, I don't want to gloss over what you just said. You know, there are writers that never recoup a deal. And you're talking about doing that every six months. I mean, that's that does show us that you've you've unlocked something in terms of like the the key to what you do and what you do well. I mean, that's that's amazing. That's uh, if I was going to start a company, uh, Justin Gray is a pretty safe bet, I would think. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. I think my mom would agree. You know, I think that, um, I, I, I I think that a lot of young writers in their first publishing deals or in their second publishing deals don't really understand the songwriter publisher dynamic and they don't really under and again i'm not saying this because i'm some great genius it took me years to 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 unlock the code right um and and i think that that's a a real skill that a lot of writers need to understand as they're as they're engaging in their first um publishing deals uh, is 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 how to interact like you know these the, their job is to see you be successful but also at the same time it's a lot easier to hit their 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 yearly numbers licensing Bruno Mars songs than it is licensing Justin Gray songs. You know what I right. mean? So hmm. how do they go and you know how how do you go and and make it so that a company that is ingesting a hundred thousand new copyrights a month gives a shit about what you do? Hmm. And 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 the only way that you can do that is by creating real human bond with human bonds with the people that are in there representing you on your behalf. They yeah. don't need to pitch Justin Gray songs. They, they they literally, you know, major publishers, especially if you're a major publisher, they can sit back all day and just literally sign off on, you know, Led Zeppelin licenses. You know, right. like they don't care about they don't care <laughs> yeah. about me, right? They can they can sign off on on Dua Lipa licenses all day or whatever's hot, right? Um, but it's it's about it's about building that human connection and that and that and that that kinship with the people that are out there that you're hoping are going to slug it out for you. Um, and, and really, and really building those relationships in that way. And again, it took me years. I've still not recouped my first publishing deal, but yet I've recouped the six that have come after it. Do you know what I mean? Because I, because those relationships, I didn't really get it at that point. Um, and you know, I, I, you know, look, I, the other things I do a couple of things right now too, really in the interest of, of, of advocating on behalf of songwriters, I've started a website that is meant a, a platform and a website that's meant to help songwriters monetize their music through film and TV placements that everybody can join for free. And I've also created and built a music publishing company um, and, a, and a management company where our whole goal is to sign young writers that I like to say are more talented than they are successful. You know, people that just haven't unlocked the code. And I really want to, it's, this is not by any means, this is not going to be their last deal that they're ever going to have. But if I can help teach them how to work in the within the structure of music publishers and 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 we're giving you know we give people these small these you know reasonable advances that they're going to be able to pay back i mean again i remember my first publishing deal i got an advance for 24 hours it was a lot of fun i felt like i was a baller and then 48 hours later i was panicking going how am i going to pay this back with music (laughs) right and so that completely derailed my creativity for about six months, honestly and sincerely. And so, you know, how do we help mentor and guide and shepherd young up and coming talent to be to to not only be better creatively, but also be better professionally and, and yeah. be better young entrepreneurs? 
Justin, this has been uh, really great just to get some insight into, you know, your life and your career trajectory as a songwriter and, and producer. And um, we just want to thank you for sharing some time with us and our listeners today to uh, to give us some insight into the nuts and bolts of the real life of a working songwriter. So thank you. It's been more than a pleasure. And again, I am beyond I mean, I cannot overstate this enough. I am beyond honored to speak to people that have picked the brains of literally my literal songwriter heroes. Um, <laughs> even just to be on that list uh, is is like, um, it's a real proud moment for me. And I'm so grateful that we've had a chance to have this conversation, you guys. Wow. Oh, awesome. Thank you, man. Yeah, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for listening. We'd love to stay connected with you. So please take a moment to subscribe to Songcraft via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcast app of choice. If you like the show, we ask you to consider rating us and leaving us a good review. Word of mouth is important, and letting other potential listeners know what you think of the show helps us tremendously. You can also sign up for our email list at songcraftshow.com and find out how to help support us at patreon.com slash songcraftshow. And you can follow us on social media by searching for Songcraft Conversations on Instagram and Songcraft Show on Facebook and Twitter. And finally, be sure to check out our friends at the American Songwriter Podcast Network at americansongwriter.com. Thanks, as always, for listening and for your support.